We talk a lot about the gospel here at First Baptist Thompson. That's really what the Who's Your One campaign is all about. It's not about ping pong balls. I mean, that's just kind of a fun thing to encourage each other and to celebrate what we're doing. But it's all about finding somebody in your life that at the very least needs to be in church, but potentially is somebody who is far from God, who needs to hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. So we're challenging you. Yes, like the four friends I preached on a few weeks ago, bring your friends to Jesus. Invite them to church. But beyond that, don't just bring them to church. Bring them to Jesus. Share the gospel with them. Help them understand who Jesus is and what He came to do. And maybe that conversation will allow you an opportunity to lead them to give their lives to Christ. But some of you may be wondering, okay, David, we talk about the gospel. We hear you talk about these gospel conversations. What exactly is the gospel? How can I have a conversation about the gospel with somebody if I don't even know what the gospel is? Well, over the next two Sundays, I'm going to try to equip us in how to have those gospel conversations. But before we do that, before we move to the how of the next two Sundays, let's look at the what today. What is the gospel? I want us to understand the basics of the good news of salvation. And I'm going to explain it in two ways. One is with a very familiar Bible verse, and the other is with a a visual illustration that I found helpful to understanding and explaining the good news. But first let's look at John chapter 3. This records one of the most famous conversations in the Bible, and I'd argue in human history. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was called the teacher of Israel. He was a religious scholar, and he sat on the Jewish, uh, kind of the religious Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And he had been hearing these rumors and hearing these reports about this teacher from nowhere, from Nazareth, who just kind of popped up and started gathering these large crowds, and he heard these fantastical rumors about these miracles. And, and so under the cover of darkness, Nicodemus went to meet with Jesus and to ask him some questions. He, he wanted to see what all the fuss was about. He wanted to see if Jesus was the real deal. And so in this conversation we see uh, early on there in, in the first few verses, Nicodemus starts off by praising Jesus. He said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he's kind of saying, Jesus, you've gained our attention, the attention of the religious elites. We've, we've noticed you, your teachings, your miracles, your crowds, but that didn't impress Jesus. And he answered basically saying, Nicodemus, that's all fine and well, but unless you're born again, you cannot become a part of God's kingdom. That kind of took Nicodemus by surprise. I mean, he's the teacher of Israel. Jesus is saying that he's not a part of God's kingdom. And what's all this about being born again? He didn't understand what Jesus meant by that. You see, Nicodemus' school of thought said that if you want to get in good with God, you have to know certain deep truths. You have to perform certain religious duties. You have to avoid all sin, and especially any questionable people. You can't associate with them. And if you do all of that, then you'll get in good with God. But Jesus came to say, no, your best efforts don't cut it. Your knowledge, your positions, your achievements, they mean nothing because it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. It's not about what you've done, it's about what God has done. Jesus said no one is good. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God on their own. Jesus said we all need a do-over. We all need forgiveness 
and salvation and restoration, but it's not born out of our good works. It's born of God. We can do no more to change ourselves or secure our own salvation than we can control the wind. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. Jesus uses this analogy of born again, which really blows Nicodemus' mind. Now let me ask you a question about that. Think about birth. Is birth an active or a passive experience for the child that's being born? In other words, is the child doing all the work or is the mom doing all the work? Ladies, the mom is doing all the work, right? Birth happens to the baby, but it's produced by the mother. She experiences the pain. She pays the price. And the same is true of our salvation. We must be born again from above from the labor and pain of God. He produces our salvation. He paid the price. He's the one who gives us life. Amen? Well, Nicodemus still doesn't understand. And he says, how can all of this be? And Jesus responds with that famous verse, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. This is probably, if you've ever memorized a Bible verse, it's probably one of the first Bible verses you ever learned. John 3, 16. You know, you see it oftentimes, you know, athletes will have it, you know, know, on their their paint on their face, or somebody in the stands will be holding up a sign that says John 3, 16. We're probably pretty familiar with that. John 3, 16 is so popular because it is the gospel in a nutshell. Author Max Licato describes it as a 26-word parade of hope, an alphabet of grace, a table of contents to the Christian hope, beginning with God, ending with life, and urging us to do the same. This verse does indeed begin with God and end with life. And it reveals what God does to secure our salvation and what we do to benefit from that, to receive that gift. In his book about this verse, 316, The Numbers of Hope, Max Lucado divides it into four statements. He loves, he gave, we believe, we live. And I'm going to use that as the basis for this part of the message. First, John 316 tells us that God loves. The God of the Bible isn't some kind of angry, vengeful God who's sitting up there in heaven just waiting to strike you down when you do something wrong. That's what our culture tends to think about the God of the Bible But the Bible doesn't describe that God. Now, don't get me wrong. He is a just and a holy God. He does have wrath against sin. And yes, it is appointed for all of us to die once and then face the judgment. All of that is true. And the wages of sin is indeed death, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the God revealed to us in the Bible is a God who first and foremost loves. He loves the world. From the most distant galaxy to the smallest particle of of dust from the majestic mountains to you and me god loves his creation the world is made up of everything and everyone that god ever dreamed of that god created and declared very good but the world is also everything and everyone under the curse because of humanity's sinful rebellion in romans chapter 8 verses 19 through 21 Paul tells us that all of creation has been subjected to frustration because of our sin. But God intends for this frustration 
To, to be so that creation itself will someday be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Paul says that creation itself is eagerly waiting, groaning with expectation for that glorious day. That is the story the gospel tells us. For God so loved every saint and every sinner, every unfaithful spouse, every addict, every tycoon, every panhandler, every man, woman, boy and girl, God loves them all. And why? Because God is love. 1 John 4.16 tells us, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God's love reaches into every corner of creation. It includes every person alive today and who has ever lived and ever will live because God is love. His love flows from His very nature. And this is no sentimental love. This isn't just some emotion. This is an active expression of God's will. In other words, God's love isn't just something He feels or says. It's something He demonstrates. He has proved His love by His actions. Because God so loved the world, we come to the second point. God gave. God gave. He gives. God so loved the world that He gave rules, commands, religious rituals. No. Max Lucado says, the heart-stilling, mind-bending truth of John 3.16 is that God gave His Son, His only Son, not abstract ideas, but divinity wrapped in human flesh. That's what God gave. He gave Himself. And so salvation isn't about what you do. It's about what God has done. It isn't achieved by our attempts at goodness or following the rules. It's the free gift of God's grace. And that gift, while it may be free for us, that gift isn't cheap, is it? It came with an infinitely high price. It was bought with the very blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates, He expresses, He shows, He proves His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is who God is. A loving, giving God. That is what God has done demonstrated that love through Jesus' death on the cross for us. And why did God demonstrate His love through Jesus on the cross? So that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. I think that word, whoever, whoever, is one of the most beautiful words in this entire verse. Because you know some people might read about God's great love and what Jesus did that the heart-stilling, mind-bending truth of John 3.16, but say, he wasn't thinking of me. Yeah, God may have that general kind of love for the whole world, but he wasn't thinking of me. But when Jesus uses that all-embracing word, whoever, it must mean you and me. Because no matter what my name is, or what your name is, our name is whoever. That whoever means you. It means me. Last Sunday, Shelly shared her testimony. And Blake, thank you for sharing today. And, and last Sunday when Shelly shared her testimony, she said that she went her whole life 
and had never heard until she got into college, had never heard somebody express to her that Jesus loved her. He loved even you. This past week I had an amazing opportunity, and I was hoping to see her here today. Maybe she is, but I've just, just not seen her. But I had an opportunity this week to talk with a lady in the church atrium, and she came needing help. She was in a place of brokenness in her life. And we were going to help her, but as we were kind of talking through that process, I began to share the gospel with her. And maybe I was inspired by your testimony, Shelley, but I went to John 3.16. I guess, too, I was working on the sermon, so that might have had something to do with it, too. I went to John 3.16, and I was sharing John 3.16 with her, and I told her, I said, I said, God, I called her by name, I said, God loves you. Has, has anybody ever told you that? Did you ever think about that before? And through her tears, she shook her head no that she'd never heard somebody tell her that God loved her. And I called her by name again. I said, I want you to know, Jesus loves you. And he died on the cross for your sins. And she prayed right there with a broken heart. And she gave her life to Jesus Christ. Right there in the church atrium. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. But that was the first time anyone had ever told her that whoever in that verse means her. Now, what was really interesting is that night, I came to the Triumphant Quartet. How many of y'all were here for the quartet concert Thursday night? It was a wonderful concert. I'd never heard them before, but man, they blew me away. And they have a song that just, I mean, as soon as they started singing it, I just started to tear up because it was about John 3.16, a song called Even Me. And I just want to read to you the chorus of that. For God so loved the world, He gave. Gave His only Son away. A way to save a wretch like me. Me, the one who needed grace. Grace to cover every stain. Stains that he no longer sees. It's amazing to believe that God so loved the world means even me. It means even you. It means even her. When God says, whosoever, thank God, when Jesus hung upon that cross, he was thinking of you. You were on His heart. I was on His heart. We can thank God that He so loved the world. It means He even loves you and me. And whoever believes in His love for them, Jesus goes on to say, they will not perish. Now, if whoever is the most beautiful word in this verse, perish is the most sobering word in this verse. And a lot of people today don't like that word. They want to gloss over that word. They want to candy coat it or skip over that word. But as I talked about last Sunday, Jesus talks about hell more often than He talks about heaven. And Jesus talks about hell about three times more than anyone else in the Bible talks about hell. Timothy Keller writes this, If Jesus, the Lord of love and the author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. Hell is not only a reality not only a place of literal fire and torment, it's worse than that. Because hell is complete separation from the goodness and the grace and the love and the light of God. It is the worst possible consequence that anyone could ever suffer. And so when Jesus talks about those who claim to have done good deeds in His name, in Matthew chapter 7, He says, Depart from Me, for I never knew you. Jesus is saying that the ultimate condemnation from God is depart from me. Now you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they took of the fruit and sinned against God, what happened to them? 
God from me. He cast them out. That's the consequence of our sin. We are departed from God. And that is ultimately what hell is about. It's the worst thing that can happen to us because we were created to walk in fellowship with God. We were created to live in His presence. Just as we need air to live physically, our souls need God's presence to live spiritually. And in hell, a soul is completely cut off from God and all that God is. Life and light and joy and peace, community, meaning, it's all absent. John 3.16 tells us that every human being loved by God Loved by God, but every human being has an eternal destiny in one of two realities. Either separated from God in the reality of hell, or in the unfiltered glorious presence of God in the reality of heaven. One of those two is everyone's destiny. What determines that destiny? What determines where you will spend eternity? Is it your good works? Your talents? Your accomplishments? Is it your pedigrees? Your possessions. Remember, Nicodemus was counting on those very things to get him to heaven. But Jesus destroyed that plan. Jesus unraveled that philosophy. Jesus said, whosoever believes will not perish. We've seen what God has done. We've seen that God loves and that God gives. The last half of this verse focuses on what we must do to receive the unspeakable gift of God's love. First it says we believe. We believe. I read a story about some Bible translators that were working with a remote island tribe out somewhere in the South Pacific and they couldn't find an appropriate verb for believe in this tribe's language. And so one translator, he was out hunting with some of the tribesmen and it had been a long, hot day and they came back from their hunting and they all just kind of flopped back in the cool and the shade And one of the natives said, My, it's so good to stretch yourself out here and rest. And the translator said, That's it. That's the word. And so he wrote down that phrase and translated John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever stretches himself out on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, that's what it means to believe. It means to stretch yourself out on Christ and to rest in Him. Because we aren't saved by what we do, we're saved by what He has already done. He has already paid the price. He's already bought your salvation with His blood on the cross. And all we must do to receive that gift of grace is to stop trusting in ourselves, to stop trusting in our goodness, in our efforts, and to trust in Jesus and His finished work on the cross. This kind of belief is far more than just mental assent to some facts, to some doctrines about Jesus. I mean, I I believe in Abraham Lincoln, but I don't trust him for my salvation. I can believe, I can believe things about a lot of people, but what I'm to believe in Jesus, I'm to trust in him, I'm to stretch myself out upon him and rest and His goodness, and His grace, and His holiness, and His righteousness, to surrender my life to Him. John 3.16 says, When I have that kind of belief, that kind of trust in Him, that I will live. That's the last part of this verse. We live. This is the great promise. If we believe and trust in the Son, given by God because of His love for us, we will not perish, but have everlasting life.
God loves, God gives, we believe, and we live. There are two Greek words for life. Zoe and bios. Now, bios is where we get words like what? Biology or biography, right? And the word bios deals with the everyday activities of life, the physical life. It's what we might say is life extensive, like the length of life, right? The extension of life. But zoe, where we get the word zoo, is the word for love used to talk about the kind of love, I'm sorry, the kind of life that God has, the kind of life that God gives. It's the word used here in John 3.16. It's the word used when the New Testament talks about the tree of life. It's the word used when Jesus says He came to give us life abundant and free. So if bios is life extensive, zoe is life intensive. It's intensive life. It is life eternal. It is life abundant. It's life to the full. In Christ, that's what we have, life to the fullest, life everlasting and abundant, because in Christ our souls are reconnected with God, the source of life and love. The problem is we try to look for love and we try to look for life in all the wrong places, don't we? All these places and things that just never deliver. But in Jesus, we can find it because He always delivers. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And Paul writes in 2 Timothy, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. John 3.16 is the gospel in one verse. It tells us that God loves. He loves even you and even me. He loves so much that He gives. He gives His one and only Son for us. And if we believe, if we turn from our sin and trusting in ourselves and we put our trust in Him, then He will give us life. Life abundant today and life eternal forever. That is the gospel in John 3.16. Now, there's a visual way I want to briefly share with you, and I'm going to explain this more in a few weeks, but there's a visual way that we can illustrate this great promise of God, and it's called the three circles. You know, we live in a broken world. We see it all around us. We see it in the news. We see it on Facebook. We see it just in our conversations with people. People have broken lives. There are broken marriages. There are broken relationships, broken systems. We see the suffering and the poverty and the pain and the death all around us. But guess what? That's not how God intended life to be lived. That was not God's design for this world. So how can we recover it? How can we recover God's plan for us and make life work? Well, first we have to look past the brokenness and see that original design. Because despite the brokenness, there's beauty all around us. There are three circles in your notes for you to fill in, okay? God's design. We see the beauty all around us. We see it in these children up here singing this morning, don't we? We see His purpose. We see the evidence of His design, even in creation. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. The psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of His hands. God designed a good world where we are supposed to have a perfect relationship with each other and a perfect relationship with Him where we know nothing but peace and joy. Is that the world that we have today? No. 
And the reason for that is because of sin. You see, life doesn't work when we ignore God's design for our lives and for our world. Sin is when you selfishly insist on doing things your way, not God's way. And so when we sin, we distort God's original design. And the consequence of that sin is separation from God, both now in this life and for all of eternity. Paul writes in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he goes on to say that the wages of sin, what we have earned by our sin, is nothing less than death. And that's what leads to brokenness. That's why our world is so broken. It's because of sin. And we do see that brokenness all around us and inside of us. But here's what happens. When we see that life isn't working, when it's not working out for you, you know what we begin to do? We begin to try to find a way out. We, we want to try to fix the brokenness ourselves. And so we do all of these things. And, you know, we, we, we try religion. Well, maybe if I just go to church. Maybe if I just am a good person. Maybe if I give more to charity. Maybe if I just uh, you know, have more friends. Maybe if I'm more powerful or more popular. We look for all of these ways out. But then we realize that none of them ever get us out of the brokenness. And so we realize we need something bigger than ourselves. We need something greater. Romans 1.25 explains these attempts to fix the brokenness ourselves. It says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served something created instead of the creator. Instead of turning to God and His truth, we turn to things. We turn to lies. Proverbs 14.12 says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. Pretty bad news, isn't it? If we just stopped it right there and went home, you'd probably be depressed, wouldn't you? We need some good news at this point. That's what the gospel is. That's the gospel. That God loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness. That Jesus, God in human flesh, came to live life the way God designed it. He came to show us the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus Himself, perfectly living God's design came to rescue us, came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. On Calvary's cross, He took your sin and shame and mine, and He paid the penalty that you and I owed for our sin. He died on that cross, and on the third day rose from the dead to provide us a way out of our brokenness. That's what John 3.16 is all about. That's why God so loved the world. In, in Colossians 2.14, Paul says that Jesus erased the dead of sin. He took it and he nailed it on the cross. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day. That's the good news. But guess what? Simply hearing that good news is not enough. You've heard that good news this morning. That's not enough. We have to admit our sin. We have to admit, confess our brokenness and stop trusting in our efforts and instead begin to trust in Jesus. We have to understand and own up to the fact that we can't escape the brokenness on our own. We need to be rescued. Two words the Bible uses are repent and believe. Another way of thinking about those words is to turn and trust. Turn from your sin, turn from your own efforts of self-righteousness, and trust in Jesus. Trust in what He has done for you. And when we turn and trust... God gives us new life in Christ. He turns our lives in a new direction. Jesus Himself said this in Mark chapter 1, Repent and believe in the good news. 
Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2, For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. It's not from works so that you have nothing to boast about. It's not what you and I do. It's what God has done. And in Romans 10, 9, as we heard in our New Testament reading, if we just confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and to say Jesus is Lord means that you are following Him, means that you have turned to Him to be the boss of your life. He is your Lord if you confess that Jesus is your Lord and you believe in your heart that not only did He die on the cross, but that God raised Him from the dead and He is alive today. Jesus, Paul says, you will be saved. And when that happens, then God restores our relationship to Him and we discover meaning and purpose in the midst of a broken world. We're able to recover and pursue God's original design for our lives. God's Spirit empowers us. That doesn't mean that we've arrived. Listen, I've not arrived. I make mistakes. I fail, but I understand God's path to restoration. I'm on that path. I've not arrived at God's design yet, but I'm recovering it and I'm pursuing it more and more every single day. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who is working in you, enabling you to both want to and to be able to work toward His good purposes. Whereas Paul continues in Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are His creation, created, born again in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. That's the gospel. God has a beautiful design for you. But because of your sin, you're not experiencing God's design, you're experiencing brokenness. But the good news is that God has made a way for you out of that brokenness. He's made a way for you to be forgiven and to have new life in Christ. But you have to do something. You have to repent. You have to turn away from your old life. You have to turn away from your efforts and your sin. And you have to trust in Jesus. And if you do that, you can begin to recover and pursue God's purpose and design for you. Now, I have a simple question for you as we close. Where on this diagram are you? Every one of us are somewhere up there. Okay? Like me, you may be on that arrow that says, Recover and pursue. I've accepted the gospel. I've given my life to Jesus, and I'm recovering and pursuing. But maybe somebody here is up there in that brokenness still. You've heard the gospel. You've heard it this morning. But you've not turned, and you've not trusted yet. I invite you to do that today. What's stopping you? What's stopping you from turning and trusting in Jesus Christ today for your salvation? As a believer, as somebody who's in that recover and pursue, maybe part of that recovery and pursuit is God is leading you and your family to unite with this church. Maybe God is calling you to serve in some way through this church. Maybe God has put a one on your heart. And you know that what you need to do is you need to share this with them this week. By the way, there are life conversation guides up here and in the back that have this exact presentation in it. You can walk through with somebody else and then give it to them. And let them have it. Okay? You don't have to remember this all. We've got some resources to help you share this good news with others. What is God saying to you today? Where are you at in these three circles? And what are you going to do to take the next step? Let's stand together and pray. You come as God responds. Father, there may be some listening right now. And they know they're in brokenness and sin. Maybe they've gone to church their whole life. Or maybe this is their first time coming. But they know they need you. 
They need you to rescue them today. And I pray that they would let go. They would step out in faith. And they would trust in you, Jesus. And Father, for those of us who are recovering and pursuing your design for us as followers of Jesus, help us to follow you more closely every day. Help us to be obedient in every area of our lives, Father, as we strive to share this good news with others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.